Did you know that the Pop Culture Preservation Society depends on support from listeners like you to keep our podcast up and running? We are an independent operation, creating, producing, distributing, and promoting the podcast by ourselves and paying for it out of our own pockets because we love it and we think it's worth it to preserve the well-loved cultural nuggets from our Gen X youth. If you'd like to become a supporter of the PCPS, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Pop Culture Preservation Society. Our Patreon supporters are like our pit crew, giving us the fuel we need to keep on trucking. And as a Patreon supporter, you'll also get special thank you gifts, like video recordings of our episodes, after the episode discussions, invitations to live events over Zoom, and the occasional blooper delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening and for being a part of our society. It was one of the most consistent parts of our lives, if you think about it. Besides our families, we could count on it every day at the same time it was there. And those characters Mm -hmm. were there. Hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who thought every day was brought to us by a letter and a number. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we are saving the show that taught us all about the letters A and K and the numbers 4 and 8, how to be kind and accepting of one another no matter what color your fur was, made us laugh like crazy, and showed us that all kinds of wonderful people lived in our neighborhoods, Sesame Street. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. There's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. born between 1965 and 1980 are given the distinction of being called Generation X. And over the past two years on this podcast, we've given our generation other names, the Big Wheel Generation, the Brady Bunch Generation, the Tiger Beat Generation. And today we're adding another one to the list, the Sesame Street Generation. Because many of you probably watched the premiere on November 10th, 1969, and you might even remember it. I actually have a comment from somebody named Angela on our Instagram feed who says she remembers her mom waking her up in the morning to watch the first episode of Sesame Street. That's adorable. Wow. What a fun memory. I'm sure my mom probably did that too, but I don't say, I can't Mm -hmm. honestly say that I remember that. Oh no, I Um, do not remember that. I do remember the moon landing though um, in 1969 that my mom sat me in front of the TV for. So many wonderful things happened in 1969, didn't it? And I was oh, born. Did they, Michelle? What else happened? <laughs> so, good segue, because many of us were alive, but too young to watch. That's me. And many of you listening hadn't even been born yet. But there's no denying the influence that Sesame Street played in all of our lives. And I'm not talking about the Elmo Sesame Street people 
I'm talking <laughs> about the OG, the Sesame Street of Mr. Hooper and Ladybug Picnic and Kermit and Grover and Ernie, who sounded like Kermit and Grover and Ernie. <laughs> that's right. I don't know not who. these imposters. Yes. Yeah. Today you listen Fakes. to them and you're like, mm-mm, that's not Kermit. Mm-mm. So Sesame Street was the brainchild of Joan Gans Cooney, a former documentary producer for public television. And Cooney's goal was to create programming for preschoolers that was both entertaining and educational. She also wanted to use TV as a way to help underprivileged three to five-year-olds prepare for kindergarten. But while we definitely today, we could keep speaking to the history, the format, educational goals, response, writing, funding, etc., We want to instead use our time to speak to the connection we all had and still have to Sesame Street. Oh, yeah. You know what um, I was thinking as we were preparing for this episode is um, I think this is the defining, at least television show of our generation. Like you can ask anyone who is Gen X about Sesame Street and everybody would know. This is not one of those, oh, I don't think I watched that, or mm-hmm. um, yeah, we didn't, you know, get that channel or whatever. This is something that we all shared. Maybe one of the only things that I could say I feel consistently across the board that people of our age experienced. And that's not necessarily true of subsequent generations. Correct. Right? Our children don't 100% have memories of Sesame Street. Some watched. Some were watching Bob the Builder, right? It's exactly. Not the same as when we were kids. Exactly. Right. It was one of the most consistent parts of our lives, if you think about it. Besides our families, we could count on it every day at the same time it was there. And those characters mm-hmm. were there. And I think that's another reason. It was every day um, we mm-hmm. had the opportunity to um, interact with these characters. When I was watching Sesame Street, I lived in a small town, a a very rural area, where there were exactly zero black people. There were no apartment buildings. There were no front stoops. And Sesame Street was my gateway to understanding that there were other people out there who did not look like me, that I was not the only one who mattered. There were lots of different kinds of people who had important things to say. But my understanding of those differences also was pre-racial. I mean, that's how little I was. I, I think I just made up the word pre-racial um, okay. because I often wondered what I would look like when I grew up. I was so curious about what I was going to look like when I grew up. And I didn't know would I look like Jan Brady or maybe I would look like Susan from Sesame Street. I didn't know. Or Prairie <laughs> Dawn. So sweet. Yeah. I didn't, or maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe I would have a felt face. We don't I know. Didn't know. <laughs> well, I think along with Mr. Rogers and Electric Company, Sesame Street was the most defining show for me from about age, I would say like age three, 1972, until I was six mm-hmm. or seven. Um, I watched it every single day, you guys, even after I started kindergarten because I had afternoon kindergarten. And I don't doubt at all that Sesame Street is hugely um, responsible for my early reading and my love of books and words and letters. And I even think, yeah, television. It's responsible for my love of television yes. because <laughs> I adored the funny skits and the colorful graphics. The humans on the show were like my family. The Muppets right. were real friends to me. I mean, mm-hmm. my favorites were and still are Grover. Here I'm wearing my Grover shirt. Um, Ernie and Bert and Snuffleupagus. And I, in fact, I still have, I don't know if you can see back there, but I still have my Ernie and my, you can see Bert a little bit. I have my Ernie Mm -hmm. and Bert puppets here, right here in my office. But 
I I loved everything. I loved the educational videos, like when they showed us how chewing gum was made or how they painted lines in the streets. I was learning from that. And Carolyn, like you just said earlier, it was the people and the familiar skits and the puppets. Mm-hmm. They were things I could rely on. And just the, you know, the repetitiveness of everything was just hugely important to me at that, mm-hmm. you know, from age three to six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my mom was sitting me down in front of Sesame Street when I was like 12 months old. <laughs> I'm pretty oh. sure. I don't think she waited until I was three. Right. No, and I'm no, sure I was too. It's just I'm my not memory of you, it. Linda. But it's my memory of it can start yeah. at about age three. Um, well, unlike most children's television programs at the time, the producers of Sesame Street decided against using a single host and instead they cast a group of ethnically diverse actors. They wanted them to have distinctive personalities and be reliable characters for the children. When Sesame Street began in 1969, you guys, there were just four people in its cast. Can you name them? I can now. But when I first saw that in our outline, I was like, <laughs> what? Four? Four people? But when I when I really drilled down, it became very obvious. Gordon and Susan. Mm-hmm. Mr. Hooper mm-hmm. and Bob. That's correct. And I think where I was getting confused is I because in 1970, we add some more. In my memory, we're always there, right? So Mr. Hooper um, was the first human cast on Sesame Street. He was played by Will Lee, beloved Mr. Hooper, right? We loved Mr. Mm-hmm. I also have a shirt that says Hooper's Store on it. That um, oh. I get these on <sighs> Tee Public, you guys, just listeners, if you're interested. They have a lot of great Sesame Street tees. Um, in the late 40s, I think this is so interesting. In the late 40s, Mr. Hooper, Willie, had been blacklisted by the House Committee on Un-American Activities for his refusal oh to name <laughs> any fellow actors as communists. You know, we've all heard about that, right? He was one of them. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he had been unemployed. He had been unemployed for years, and then he was hired in 1958 on As the World Turns, and then, you know, 10 years, 11 years later on Sesame Street. And actually, people really um, give Joan Gantz Cooney a lot of credit for hiring one of the former blacklisted um, Mm -hmm. actors for that. So that's Mr. Hooper. Um, So they thought Mr. Hooper was a commie. Well, back in in like the late 40s. Yeah. 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 Right. Mm -hmm. I know. And I love this one, but you can actually date, I think, yourself by the Gordon you remember. Oh, Because there wasn't Uh always the same Gordon. He was originally played by Matt Robinson, and he resigned in 1972 only because he was a behind-the-scenes guy. He was a puppeteer. He was – they kind of grabbed him at the last minute because their test Gordon hadn't worked out so well. And they were like, hmm – Gordon, uh, Matt Robinson voiced Roosevelt Franklin. Roosevelt Franklin, what do you say? I say A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Just had to get that out. So they grabbed him and said, do you want to be Gordon? He said, sure, why not? So it was fine. But after a couple of years, he was like, this, is, this isn't for me being in front of the camera. I don't like um, Susan. And then they had, someone, they had someone named Hal Miller stepped in for a year. But then the Gordon came, who I associate Gordon with, and that's Roscoe Orman. And he played Gordon until 2016. So he's my this Gordon. This is so funny mm-hmm. because I, my Gordon is Gordon number one. Okay. And I have a lot of feelings about Gordon. I would say Gordon is probably my number one character, which is probably a little surprising. But I also struggled with Gordon because he was the only character whose actor was switched out. And yep. I was not able to understand what was happening. I did not know they were actors. I thought they were real people. Oh, of course. So, right. One day Gordon shows up and I'm like, what's wrong with Gordon? And then not only does he have a completely different face one day, but then his afro falls off. And <laughs> I'm just like, what? Can that actually happen? Like, can you wake up with a different face one day? 
But I think my number one, Gordon's number one status for me is based completely on Matt Robinson, the Afro mustache and beard Gordon. And he took his role very seriously because he, like you said, he was a puppeteer and he had brought, been brought into this project, Sesame Street. And he felt he was to be a positive role model for black children who lacked a strong father figure. And I'm telling you, that worked on me. Even though I had a completely intact family, I felt very comforted mm-hmm. and protected by Gordon number one. So then when Gordon number one left in <laughs> 1972, one. do you guys know who was in the running for Gordon Mm-mm. to be Gordon number two? That would be Robert Guillaume. Benson. Oh, I can see that. Oh, Benson was going to be Gordon. I can see that. A young, because mm-hmm. he was a lot younger then. He was a lot younger. But mm-hmm. instead, they chose Hal Miller, like you said. And then Gordon number three, you said, was your Gordon, mm-hmm. Michelle. Um, so Gordon number three was the bald Gordon. The afro fell off. And he <sighs> left in 1976 to join the cast of All My Children as a pimp named Tyrone. <gasps> Oh, which no. I totally remember. I remember Tyrone. I'm I, watching I all my children. Too. Yeah, he was Estelle's pimp. And I remember not knowing what a pimp was, but he was very flamboyant and I knew that was bad. Right. Like somehow this guy was bad. What a strange casting. Yeah. Going from Sesame Street to all my children as a pimp. Because if you're a kid walking around the house or whatever, and all of a sudden your mom's watching all my children. And you're like, but that's Gordon, and he's wearing yeah, like he's this weird dad. hat. And Daddy, he's my dad. yeah, yeah. Dad. But I mean, let's be clear, I was watching all my children. <laughs> well, I'm also thinking that you're eight watching all my children. Yeah, but every, you're, right. You're, it might be on in the background, is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Like maybe mm-hmm. that was your mom or your grandmother's watching yeah. the soap, and you're you do this double take, and like, oh okay, my but gosh. We, but we do have some confusion because you said Roscoe Orman played it until 2016. Did he uh-huh. play Gordon and Tyrone at the same time? Maybe? maybe. And maybe he left for a little. So I have this really great book. It's so giant. It doesn't even fit in my screen. If this part's on YouTube or something, you can see it. But it's this great giant Sesame Street coffee table book that was published in 2009 for the 40th anniversary. It is an amazing resource. It's like an Sesame Street encyclopedia. I'm going to post some photos from the book on um, social media this week. But you can still get it. I saw that it's still available on Amazon. It's kind of pricey, though. It's like $70. Um, I got it as a Christmas gift, you know, 10, 12 years ago. But it's fantastic. And the 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 pages are just thick, that lovely thick, you know, um, coffee table book page, but that's where I was getting a lot of my information from. So I'd have mm-hmm. to flip it through, but I don't know. We can, we can fact check that, um, Krista. Well, and see. yeah, some, some people can help us fact check. They love to tell us when we've said something every wrong. time, <laughs> every time you say he lost his Afro, I'm imagining the wild, uh, the woolly, uh, you know, the little thing, um, that you'd play in car on car trips with the little magnet with all the little oh, yeah. Um, yeah. metal shavings <laughs> yeah. that mm-hmm. you could make, make the beard you could, and you can make the beard and you could mm-hmm. make a little Afro and then you could turn it up and it would fall right off. That was you could make Gordon one and Gordon two on That's your right. wild woolly oh, or it wild was so, woolly. It was so hard for me. I'm just looking at that face, going, "What happened to Gordon?" <laughs> that would be confusing. Yeah. So then, moving on, Gordon's um, his wife Susan, his wife Susan was played by Loretta <laughs> Long, and she's the only OG who is still on Sesame Street, or at least she still was a, a year or two ago. But Loretta. Long was hired to play Gordon's wife, Susan. They originally wanted um, a real folksy um, character. They wanted her to be like a Joan Baez type. And she was um, waiting to audition and just, they just kept passing her over, passing her over. And finally, 
at the end, she's like, I came here to sing for y'all, right? Like, let me sing. And she starts singing, I'm a little teapot, completely oh, like acapella, as if she's singing it to a child. And the story is, that was it. Everybody was like, oh, oh, like this, like con- they, they could see that connection that she would have with children instantly. And she was hired to play Susan, who became a really important and influential role model on Sesame yes, Street, if did. you think about oh, it. I mean, she started sure. as a stay-at-home mom, which they they said, you know, they were a little worried at first about the feminists and everything, but just in some of the stuff I've read, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, they still made her very motherly and everything. But then, you know, Susan goes on to become, I think it's a nurse, right? Doesn't she mm-hmm. go on to it's become a nurse. a nurse? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, Loretta Long, the actress who plays her, has her PhD. She's Dr. Loretta Long because she has her PhD in education. Oh, my God. No wonder she knew how to sing my my little teapot. What's it called? I'm, I'm a, a little, little teapot. teapot. Yeah. No wonder she knew how to sing I'm a little teapot in mm-hmm. a way that actually connects with children, yeah. not in a performance style. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, and then, of course, Bob. Bob's my Bob's my Gordon. Like like uh, Kristen, you said Gordon is your kind of most memorable. Bob for me was my constant. Bob was just just friendly, and um, you know, Bob um, played by Bob McGrath, who sadly we just lost last fall. He passed away mm-hmm. um, in the fall of twenty twenty two. And his story um, is so funny because he became so beloved so fast on Sesame Street and was on for so, so long. He was just such a constant on that show for so many of us. But when he was originally approached for this show, he wasn't interested in the least. He was already a singer. He was a vocalist. He, that's what he his path, he thought, was. Um, but a few months later, he saw Jim Henson's work, and he totally changed his mind. And he said, this is something really special, and I want to be a part oh. of it. And then he wow. has the same job for like 54 years or something. But, but you know what? If you love what you do, right? I mean, That's he right. was so good at it. And Kristen, kind of like you were saying earlier, uh, I wanted to literally be on Sesame Street. Not necessarily the TV show. I just wanted to live there. Yes. You know, that you could walk to the store, that your neighbors could be that close to you, that you could just get everywhere. Because I grew up, you know, in suburban Houston in a pre-planned subdivision where you had to get in your car to go anywhere. And the thought of just like running into a neighbor as you're walking to the store. <laughs> oh, I just love that. I mean, even when we looked for a house here when we were moving to um, Minneapolis, I said, I want to be able to walk to a store. That was one of the qualifications yeah, for my house. It's my number one qualification. And if you could yeah. throw in a post office too, more yep. power to you. That a was snoop. like... Yes. Is everybody for me? It. it was everybody hanging out on their stairs, you know, like yeah, that, sitting yeah. on the stairs that to the their house. Mm-hmm. Community. Mm-hmm. It, well, there was just this yeah. sense of yeah. community that once we had these ranch houses and yards and all of that, you weren't necessarily out in that close proximity to people on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And I just wanted that. I really did. That's so interesting. That's a really good story, Carolyn, because when, like I said, when I was watching Sesame Street, I lived in this rural area and there was. There was a store called the, well, I called it the pink store because it was pink. Now I'm thinking, do I really know the name of the store? And we thought maybe it's walkable. Let's try. And so a whole bunch of neighborhood kids got together and we schlepped to the pink store. And I remember getting home with blisters and it was not walkable. But did that plant a seed? Like I was just dying to go to the pink store and buy some bubble gum and it wasn't walkable. And now I've... uh, I've rarely lived in a place where I can't walk to a store. Hmm. Yeah. 
Well, like I said earlier, so that was ni- those four characters were the original in 1969. And then in 1970, obviously, because I know some of you are screaming at your devices, what about Miguel? What about Luis and Maria? What about Molly the mail carrier? Did you guys know Molly the mail carrier was played by Charlotte Ray, Mrs. Garrett from Facts of Life? Oh, my God. She's like dark what? hair. I would have never known that. What? I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't really remember Molly the Mail Carrier until I watched some skits with her in it. And then I was sort of like, she was friends with Bob. I don't think she was on it a ton, but okay. um, she was a recurring character starting in 1970. And see, um, people were friends with the Mail Carrier. Yes, You yes, know, they were. in suburbia, yes. you Who just went to- people in your neighborhood? Yeah. In and when we moved again to, um, to Minneapolis- we had a walking mailman. I was just in heaven. I had never had a mailman that walked before that I knew his <laughs> well, name. Like my mail. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never did. They were always in a little vehicle. So I just loved the coziness of the mail carrier coming to your door, putting the mail in. Our, the, our one here, we knew his name, you know, gave him real yes. Christmas presents. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so nice. When we moved to New Hampshire, the mail carrier bought presents for Liam. And I thought, and it was really quite heartbreaking because I was moving to a place where there were no sidewalks and they delivered the mail in a truck. I'm just putting this together now. They did not walk up to our door and give us the mail. Um, there, I couldn't walk to a store. And it, the pain of leaving this neighborhood was almost unbearable. And I remember when she handed over those gifts, I'm like, that doesn't happen other places. No. Right? People don't know their mail carrier. Who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, say, who are the people in your neighborhood, the people that you meet each day? So besides the adult humans, there were many other important humans on Sesame Street, and that would be the children. Now, this comes from Wikipedia, you guys, but I loved how it was put so much. I didn't edit it. I'm just going to read it. According to the Children's Television Workshops research, children preferred watching and listening to other children more than to puppets and adults. I don't know about that, but... So they included children in many scenes. Dave Connell, Connell, Dave Connell probably, insisted that no child actors be used. So these children were non-professionals, unscripted, and spontaneous. Many of their reactions were unpredictable and difficult to control, but the adult cast learned to handle the children's spontaneity flexibly, even when it resulted in departures from the planned script or lesson. Children's Television Workshop research also revealed that the children's hesitations and on-air mistakes served as models for the viewers. And what comes to mind instantly, for me at least, after reading that, is that one famous sketch from the 70s where it's the little girl, her name's Joey, and Kermit. And he's trying to get her to say the ABCs with him, (laughs) and she keeps interrupting him with, Cookie Monster! And then she just laughs her head off over and over. Can you sing the alphabet? Yes, yes, I could. Let's hear you sing the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Q, 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 And apparently that was all her. That they were supposed to sing the ABCs together. And if you go back and watch it, Kermit, Jim Henson, handled it beautifully. So here's the adult. And I think that puts into practice everything I just read. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. wanted their hesitations and on air mistakes to serve as models because that's what kids did. I think this decision to use non actors 
was pivotal. Yeah. Because their foibles are adorable, even to other children. There's And there's nothing worse than a child actor trying to be cute, right? <laughs> and that's the difference between Sesame Street and Barney. No offense, Selena Gomez. Um, and that endeared them to us, even as children. So we could then open our ears and fully understand what they might be thinking and feeling and learning in a way that you wouldn't from somebody who was delivering lines and going, hee, hee, hee. Yeah, that was all scripted. And I don't know about you guys, but I thought I could maybe be one of those kids. Like I oh, thought maybe um, if I go to New York or audition oh or whatever, God. I could be on there. I could do that. Mm-hmm. I actually have that almost exactly word for word in my notes, Carolyn. I have, I don't know about you guys, but I just <laughs> loved the children and any skit where the children got to interact with a Muppet. And to your point, Kristen, because they weren't those kind of obnoxious, overscripted child actors, that's what made us believe we could be one mm-hmm. of them. Yes. And that's what mm-hmm. made this whole show so relatable to us because sometimes the children are kind of looking at the Muppet like, what's happening to me right now (laughs) next to me? And that's how we felt sometimes at age three, looking Cookie Monster or Grover can be kind of loud and kind of puzzling. And sometimes the kids kind of clam up. They don't say what they're supposed to say. And the, the puppet, the Muppet, does such a good job of bringing that child out of their shell every single time. And even if he gets them to just say one or two words or letters, Mm -hmm. that was so relatable. And To me, it was like the best kind of make-believe magic come to life. I wanted to be surrounded by those humans and by those puppets. John John, I think, might be the universal favorite (laughs) of the children on the show. The cheeks. And there's that, oh, God, the cheeks cheeks. of John John and the the skit with him trying to count with Grover. John John? What? Could you uh, count uh, to uh, ten? Yeah. Hmm? I want to count with... I want to count backwards. Okay, count backwards for me. One, two, three, four, uh, John, John. five. What? Uh, John, John, you know what? What? That's not really counting backwards. Even as a child, I thought John John was cute. So I may have been, what, a year older than John John? I wasn't that much older. But even when I'm four years old or five years old, I want to hug John John. Your first I crush. Think, oh my God, John John. Oh my, God. my first crush. <laughs> I love when to kiss his little cheeks. And then I'm sure you've seen this the, the video of adult John yes. John counting with oh, Grover. Oh, so cute. We, we should put that in our newsletter. Let's do it. Yeah. I can watch that a hundred times. Yeah. Side by side with little John John. And he's wearing like a military uniform. Well, I was he's just about to say up. that. He became yes. really successful. He was on Sesame Street for many years, I think, because he changed. He might he might have lost some of the cheeks. We might not have recognized <laughs> that, that that six-year-old was actually John John. I read a fun story that um, said um, one time, um, I don't know if it was when he was dating the person who became his wife or if it was just a girlfriend. I think it was the person who became his wife. When she found out who he was... She immediately said, the cheeks. I loved your cheeks. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that cute? Imagine. Is so adorable Mm -hmm. and and memorable. Like nobody will ever forget John John. Well, we can't talk about the characters of Sesame Street without mentioning the very the most important, and we have a little bit, but the Muppets. Now I'm going to I want you two to take turns and see how many of the original, like we're going first year. So we're going 69 to 70. How many okay. of those Muppets you can name? And no, Elmo is not on the list. So don't even try to Elmo me. Okay. 
Okay. Oscar the Grouch. Correct. Big Bird. Yes. I'm going to go with Snuffleupagus, although I don't know if he no, was in Snuffleupagus. Was he still was invisible? not in season one. Oh. He was invisible. Or did he, was he invisible or was he not even making appearances on well, the show? Well, he wasn't even Quote making appearances, appearances on the show yet. But okay. that is a good question I because I can remember when Snuffleupagus was invisible. But I'm yeah. wondering that whole storyline. I need to refresh my memory on that, and I'll have to do that at some point. It was um, so frustrating oh, when people I'm, would show up. And I'm yeah. like, he's just here. Yeah. He's just right. here. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay, Kristen. Okay, so I'll um, jump in with Bert. Bert is correct. Thank Carolyn. you, Kristen, because that gives me Ernie. <laughs> You're welcome. Yes. Now, did you guys know, fun fact, Ernie and Bert were portray- portrayed uh, during our years by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, and it said Ernie and Bert are are a reflection of their personalities. I always and, thought you know of them would... as the odd couple. Like once the yes. odd couple was on and my parents would watch that, yeah. I would be like, mm-hmm. Felix and Oscar is Bert, mm-hmm. or Bert and Ernie. Yeah, Bert is Felix. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. you still have about six or seven more. Just they start thinking outside the box. Oh my God. Okay, I know I know Grover. We haven't said Grover well, yet. Well, Grover was, interestingly enough, and listeners go look this up and maybe we'll put a link or I'll put a photo on um on social media this week. Grover was, but he was not fully formed until season two. So the first iterations of Grover oh. <laughs> were him and like the first, you know, puppets they were making. It looks very Grover-like, but it's not, it's not the, it's not this Grover. So, um, it's like but a he, fur dress. <laughs> kind of, but he was yeah. on season, he did show up in season one. Yes. Okay. Of course we have Roosevelt Franklin. Roosevelt Franklin. Yep. Um, yep. He was that cool kid. Mm -hmm. Um, he was on seasons one through seven. Cool kid who loved scat, rhyme, and to sing the blues. (laughs) What do you say? (laughs) Uh, of all the Muppets, Roosevelt Franklin is my favorite Muppet. And I, I know you guys are looking at me like, but that's so, because I think it's so cute that, that, I mean, we all liked Roosevelt Franklin, but I love that he was someone's favorite. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. He knew everything. He didn't, it wasn't just his ABCs. He knew how to count. He knew the days of the week. And he was, like you said earlier, Michelle, he was created by Gordon number one and he was voiced by him too. And even after Roosevelt, even after um, Gordon number one left the show, he continued to write and voice Roosevelt Franklin. But like you said, he was dropped, um, I think after seven seasons or Mm -hmm. something, Um, even though he was wildly popular, but people were worried that this classroom of rowdy children that Roosevelt Franklin was often the, um, was often the ringleader of trying to teach them how to sing the ABCs. He thought, they thought those rowdy children set a bad example and that he may have been portraying a negative negative African-American stereotype, which I disagree, but also I'm not an authority on the subject, so shut your mouth. Um, Or people thought he was too black, or some people thought he was not black enough. So Roosevelt Franklin was a lightning rod, but he still kept making cameos on Sesame Street even after they dropped him. Oh, that's good to know. That is Mm -hmm. good to know. Because people loved him. Yeah. People loved him. Well, I'm sitting here thinking... um, I'm listening to you, Kristen. Don't think I'm thinking while you're talking. But yeah. <laughs> um, I'm thinking that I don't know if I'd say my favorite, but the character that sticks with me the most is um, Oscar the Grouch. And I think this is telling of my personality because I just wanted Oscar to be happy. Oh, I just yeah. I felt so sad for Oscar. Like, what made him so sad? Why was he so grumpy with everyone? Like, what? which kid on there is really going to? snap him out of it. Like, put me on the show. I'll make Oscar happy. And that just always was with me. Like, this will be the episode where he's really excited and happy and not always 
grouchy. Do you guys remember dad grouchy? Was my dad? Was your dad grouchy? No, my mom was grouchy. (gasps) Oh, there we go. Okay. (laughs) Do you guys remember how exciting it was, the episodes where we got to go down into Oscar's trash can and see what it was like? I lived for those episodes. It was so Carolyn just turned inside out. (laughs) Carolyn just like became boneless. She's like, I love it so much. (laughs) And a little slimy. But um, you guys, also one thing that is so brilliant about the creators of Sesame Street and all of us with our education backgrounds, um, we understand this and we appreciate this, is, you know, the character of Oscar the Grouch could be grouchy all the time, but yet anytime Oscar's interacting with someone else, they're not. They're just kind of like joking, don't be such a grouch, but it's just sort of, they let him be a grouch. And so as a child watching it, you're getting this reflection of sometimes I can be a grouch and that's okay, right? It doesn't mean the people around me me aren't going to still love me. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was, I think, you know, Oscar was a really intentional character on this show, um, I would assume. Well, and the placement of Slimy is also incredibly intentional because you have this grouchy dude but his relationship, I'm talking so specifically no, but this, I know about Slimy, um, but his relationship with Slimy, welcome to book club, um, <laughs> shows that he has heart. Yes. So he's not a bad person. No, no. He's just in a bad he mood. Slimy. But he's, yes, he was so, um, he was so warm and, and caring with Slimy. Like maternal kind of, paternal yes. with Slimy, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're Which so is a good right. lesson for all of us. But see, again, here we are on this podcast, going back at in our, with through our fifty-something-year-old lenses, able to mm-hmm. see things that we we saw. We loved the friendship between Gro- Gro- Oscar and <laughs> Slimy, but we might not have been seeing like now. This was very pointed to show that he's yeah. a grouch, but he's a good. He does have a good heart, and this is just his exterior, and maybe this is just how he has to project. Yeah, you right. know. Oscar could have used some therapy. There should have been a therapy. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, let me tell you guys, all the stuff I'm working on in therapy is coming. It's making sense now why I felt that way about Oscar. Because you just made the comment about he, um, you know, Sesame Street did this intentionally. Like, it's okay to be grouchy. Yeah. I never thought it was okay to be grouchy. No, I didn't So either. I'm still working with that. It's okay to feel the feeling. Like, that's not a, neg- a mm-hmm. negative feeling. Like, all feelings mm-hmm. are just feelings. I thought mm-hmm. it was my job to get rid of the, oh, the grouch same. or the sadness or whatever in someone. So I think that was what I was, why I was drawn to Oscar because it's like, oh, I can make you happy. It's, you don't have <laughs> right. to be grouchy all the time. It's where if I had had a different perspective, it would be like, it's okay to be grouchy. You can be grouchy, yeah. but no, I'm just learning that now. It's okay I hear to be you one hundred percent. I was. I am with you. There was too many other people being grouchy. I, there was no space for mm-hmm. me to be grouchy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my job. I'm going to just read you un-grouchy. the other characters okay. that appeared in season one okay. because you'll know who they are. And I wouldn't have expected you guys to know this, so don't think I'm like, how did you oh, forget good. this one? I was how did really you forget struggling. Granny Bird? Yeah. Uh, but Granny Bird, Big Bird's. Um, it was it was discovered this was oh, Big Bird's paternal grand uh, grandmother and it was this is you know we are kind of pulling back the veil now so hopefully you guys don't have little children listening but you know they just took an extra Big Bird costume and they put a shawl around it and a little gray wig on it that's and Granny Bird she had glasses Bird. she had Granny glasses. And glasses yeah did she have a and purse did she have a purse oh, I don't know <laughs> I don't know it's in my head go ahead you know. guys in this book though that I was just telling you about this giant this Sesame Street. Um, 
um, coffee table book I have, there is the greatest picture of Carol Spinney sitting between takes and he's got the lower half of Big Bird on. So he's got the big legs, but he's just reading the paper. So, and it <laughs> describes you guys how he had to use one arm sticking straight up and the other arm, and that worked the eyes and the mouth and the other arm had to work both wings. It's like they said that, and he had to be able to, sometimes he roller skated Let's remember oh Big Bird. God. He danced. He hula hooped. He. They said he was nothing short of a genius for being able to I'm doing maneuver. All the I can't Big even yeah, do this. Kristen. I know. You know, I'm rub my hooping. head and pat. How my do you stomach. roller skate with your hand in the air? I don't your know. Balance is off. I don't know. Oh, um, fun facts. I have two um, little trivia questions for you guys about Big Bird. Do you okay. know how tall he was? No. I know. That's just what I'm learning. Tall. Yeah, he was eight feet two inches tall, and he was forever how old? He was four. Nope. He wasn't four? No. A little bit older. He was forever oh, six years old. Big bird. Um, okay, so then we have we had Granny Bird. Now we have Little Bird. Do you remember Little Bird? He was um, mm -mm. primarily brought on to teach the difference between Big Bird and Little Bird, but he was often used to foil Big Bird. You can picture him, can't you? Little mm -hmm. Bird. He's oh, just kind of a little, little okay. yellow yep. with little feathers. Yep. Like um, yep. Betty Lou. Now, Betty Lou is often confused with, pra with Prairie Dawn. Um, okay. She's pink skin, pink felt skin, blonde braids, often with a little blue bow oh. on top of her head. Mm -hmm. But yes. the first blonde few braids. years, she wasn't Prairie Dawn. She was Betty Lou. Um, and then Lefty the Salesman, when I saw, I recognized. He's the shady-looking oh. green salesman mm -hmm. with a trench coat and a black hat, and he speaks in a whispery voice. And he's usually seen trying to sell another monster, like a letter. Like, he'll open his trench yeah. coat, and he'll be like, how about this A? He tried to sell Ernie about an this eight. I remember yeah. that. And, or he's mm -hmm. like, or something, like an ice cream cone. Another great resource um, for those of you listening that just can't get enough Sesame Street. We'll put this in the Weekly Reader this week. It's just the Muppet fan Wiki fandom page. And it's everything Sesame Street. So you can, I, I just searched character by year and all the characters that showed up first season, second season, human and Muppet show up. Sing, sing a song. Make it simple to last your whole So from its earliest planning stages, Sesame Street was designed to be a show that would use music and singing as part of the material being taught. So it was only natural that they were going to release some musical content on records, not only to reinforce this curriculum, but also um, to get children who weren't watching the show to get interested in watching the show. But they also felt that Sesame Street music could be enjoyed just for its own sake. It didn't have to go along with the show. You could just enjoy the music on its own. And so the first six albums that they uh, released were released by either Columbia Records or Warner Brothers Records. So these are major labels. And um, they were colorful, these albums. They came in a gatefold, which is like when the album cover opens up. Um, and sometimes there were posters in there. They had bonus materials, photos, um, things like that. And I remember, I think my sister had Sesame Street Live. That was one of the first um, six original albums that came out. And then, believe it or not, in 1975, a different label actually um, produced a compilation of songs from Sesame Street by various artists. And this would have been KTEL. So KTEL really? actually produced one Sesame Street record, which I thought was super interesting. Uh, so cute. Now, one song 
This was one of my rabbit hole things that I'm so excited about. <laughs> one song that is featured on several albums is the song Sing. Yes, that Sing. The song that the Carpenters covered in 1973. So you might remember from the Carpenters episode that we did that they selected Sing to be their debut single from the Then and Now album. And it actually peaked at number three. And everyone thought they were crazy to want to do this. And Richard was like, this is something. And I'm just so glad that they did. And also, now I understand why I always think Karen was singing it with Big Bird or something, as oh, we I talked about too. in that Carpenter's yes. episode. Right? We thought we could yeah. find it. We were like, yes. I, I had in my, there's a false memory living in my head with Karen Carpenter singing, sing with Muppets, yeah. with Kermit, with little children. That never happened. It it's never not just happened. you, though, because I have that same mm-hmm. We probably have that same in picture head. in our heads. Yeah. yeah. A lot of yeah. other artists did come on Sesame Street and sing alongside mm-hmm. um, the different Muff- Muppet characters with that song, but Karen was not one of them. Hmm. Everybody did it, except Karen Carpenter, <laughs> the one who covered Isn't it. That, she would yes, have been so straight. sweet on there, too. And she's the I only know. one I remember. I it was a Bob song, wasn't it? I think it was a Bob song. Was it? It's like a Big Bird song, isn't it? In my album, it was a Big Bird song. But maybe Bob oh, was well, a human then. That, there were a lot of covers of that song. I yeah. mean, a lot I'm of different album. I just um, look characters at it. and people from Sesame Street covered mm-hmm. that song. So um, there were actually 62 albums produced <gasps> from 1970 oh, to 1980. God. So I'm just looking at that. 19- 62 in 62 albums. years? Yes. Now, some were kind of um, rebranded a little bit. So it was maybe yeah. the same album from early on, but different cover, maybe some different songs added and some taken out. But 62 was how many there were. And one of my favorites was one called Susan Sings Songs from Sesame Street. Try to say that really 10 times Brought to you by the letter S. <laughs> yes, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And let me tell you, this would have been the first album that I remember owning. and Ever? Just in your whole life? Ever, ever. Like a true Aww. album. Because mm-hmm. it, again, was one of these gatefold albums, which meant it opened up. So the cover is Susan with a bunch of kids in what I imagined was like Central Park. It was like the neighborhood city park. Just cool oh God, things. I can see it in my head. And again, oh I wanted to be there. Like that looked like fun. Look at all those kids. And then you open it up and it's same thing, those kind of photographs. And I would play this album and just stare at these photographs and just pour over them and think I could be in those pictures. Yeah. It is such a visceral, visceral memory for me that when I went on YouTube to listen to some of the songs, I found the soundtrack on there. I truly felt like I was in one of those time machines where I was getting like zapped back. Like, <laughs> yeah. and you would see all this like <laughs> stuff spinning around. And honestly, for probably a good 10 seconds, I was six years old. I was in my bedroom. I could see my bedspread. I could see myself, oh my even gosh. like my feet in the air, laying on the floor, just looking at that album. And then that song, you guys... Happiness is on this album. And when I heard this, the pictures I had in my mind then just flooded back because it was like, happiness is is two kinds of ice cream, finding your skate key, telling the time. Such a visceral memory of Susan singing. That song is from um, Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I remember it, though, more from... Sesame Street, I think, than I do. Me too. From anything Mm -hmm. else. Absolutely. Yes, totally. Um, It was just... Again, took me back. 
unlike really, I almost want to say anything we have done so far, because wow. I think it might be my oh. earliest PCPS memory of something that we're actually talking about in an episode um, that just came flooding back. The album actually reached number 86 on Billboard's top LPs for that year, which I oh, thought wow. was pretty impressive and go, was um, nominated for a Grammy, but the Sesame Street book and record beat out Susan Sings songs what from year Sesame Street. Was, was that the one I had? Yeah. And you know what, though? Uh, it's not, it's not um, it really that surprising that um, Loretta Long's album, The Susan Sings, was so successful because don't forget when she auditioned, all she did is sing I'm a Little Teapot and all of the people in the room almost just like stopped breathing and we're like, oh, it's you. It's you. We finally found you. So, you know, to have her make an entire album of these songs was genius. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. The songs were not actually Sesame Street songs. They weren't songs Mm -hmm. you would have heard on Sesame Street. They were kind of like we just said, happiness came from You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and there are other Broadway show songs that are on this album. Um, And yeah, there are other Broadway songs that are on this album. Well, but but the brilliance in it too, though, is um, calling it Susan Sings. It's not a Loretta Long. It's not Loretta Long. No, it's Susan Sings. These were real people. Right. (laughs) I don't think I knew she had a real name until we did this research. Of course not. Sorry, that's Susan. That was my favorite Sesame Street album and really one of my fondest childhood memories. For happiness is anyone and anything at all that's loved by you. But most of all, you make me happy. Aww. That's so beautiful. The album that I had was the one that you just mentioned, the Sesame Street Book and Record original cast recording from 1970. So, so it sounds mm-hmm. like that's the one that won the Grammy that year. Yes. Um, most of the time it's just referred to as the original cast recording. And like you said, it was repackaged over the years into different things like Sesame Street One or I'm not exactly sure, but it would have a different cover and even mm-hmm. a different um, – the songs would be in a different order. And if you look it up on any streaming services, the songs are – um, are, there are some that are missing. They are not in the same order. So if you don't have the original vinyl pressing, it's gone. That memory is gone. Oh, that's so of course sad. I found it on eBay and it's on its way to my house right now. Hooray! <laughs> yeah. Um, so just like you, Carolyn, the only way to listen to this, because you can't stream it in its original form on streaming services, you have to dig it up on YouTube and somebody just plays the record on their record player and takes video of it. And when I first listened, When I started listening, I thought, I must not have listened to this record for very long because I didn't have the song order memorized. You know how you can start singing a song before it begins because you know exactly the order of the songs? But then they flipped the record over and I got Husker Dude hard, hard. I had very sad feelings listening to this record and I wasn't sure why. And then it all started coming back to me. It was one particular song that triggered this cascade of memories. And I'll share what that song was in a minute. My record got warped. I had left the record out on my floor. And it got warped in the sun. And I got in big trouble because I hadn't taken care of my records. And that was a big deal in my Mm -hmm. house. So the record wasn't replaced. Nobody ever bought me a new one. I ruined it. But it stayed in my collection. And I just couldn't listen to it, which always made me feel so ashamed. 
that I couldn't, I had ruined and the track and I couldn't it, listen to it. That brought that back to you. Yep. Gosh, it isn't music whoosh. amazing? It, it's it's science, you guys. <laughs> yeah. It's so bizarre. So then I remembered, as I'm being hooskerdooed by this song, I remember being previously hooskerdooed by this song um, when I was still a child, like nine or ten or eleven, or you know, ten, eleven years old. I got smacked in the face with this song when I was still little. I heard the song wafting out of somebody's bedroom when I was at a friend's house. Probably it was a little sister or a little brother or something. And I got to use Michelle's terminology, a twisty feeling in my tummy. <laughs> I got manalote at age 10. I was like, where is this coming from and what does it mean to me? And I didn't know. I just knew that I felt a little bit like crying. And it's the first song on side B. It's called Somebody Come and Play. I love that song. And it's this plaintive request by someone who is alone for someone to choose them and be a playmate, which is, you know, let's be honest, this is a chronic condition of childhood that everyone has to deal with at some point in their life. Somebody come and play. sad song it does give you a lump in your throat mm. it's a hopeful song the the child in the song is not complaining it's a hopeful song but you get a lump in your throat and sesame street was so good at getting inside the heads of children to know what weighed on them they were able to see situations through children's eyes and not just through the adult eyes they want to paint childhood as just rainbows and unicorns all the time and that's not true so this same album also has it's not easy being green which has the same flavor, mm -hmm. right? We all knew that Kermit was sad, but he was trying to see the bright side because he knew he can't change his color. He can't change who he is. Both of these songs with this, this melancholy flavor are written by Joe Raposo, the musical director for Sesame Street. And I think he must have been writing from a very personal place. He wrote about half the songs on this album, and the others were written by a man named Jeff Moses. And these Jeff Moses songs have a completely different feel to them. He wrote Rubber Ducky, These Are the People in Your Neighborhood. He wrote Everybody Wash. He wrote Going for a Ride. And it's like these two men had two very distinct jobs. One needed to be bright and funny and teach a concept. The other had to identify feelings and validate them. And it worked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Think about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and they stuck with day. us. I know um, yeah. last night uh, when I was doing some last-minute prep for this episode, I was wandering around the house singing, somebody come and play. And oh. my husband from the other room, you could hear him going, somebody come and play today. Some, and then we're singing it together. And I'm like, have the two of us ever sang that song in, you know, the 88 years we've known each other? No. Right. Right. No. But we both know it. Okay, well, how about we take a trip down Carolyn's rabbit hole? I like it. <laughs> there could have been a lot, but I picked my favorite interesting facts that I thought you all would enjoy. Um, so the name Sesame Street, the title for the show, did not just roll off the tongue. It was not something they studied really hard and um, thought would make the perfect title because in early spring of 1969, the press conference that was going to announce the show was 
going to be coming out on PBS. And they still had not made a decision about the title of the show. They had gone through all of these different titles. Um, and actually, I'm going to tell you a couple of them and you can think like, what? Like one being The Video Classroom, another being Fun Street. That's the title of the show? That was one of the, um, yeah, one of the options. No, thank you. Exactly. Fun Street, which that just doesn't do anything for me. And it was getting a little frantic. The publicity people are like, we need a name for this show. And um, eventually they kind of settled on 123 Avenue B. That that was one that that got a little um, Mm -hmm. traction. However, that name was eventually rejected for fear that the show's title would not appeal to viewers outside of New York City. They thought that was, I guess, oh, a little because a, oh, Avenue B is a New York thing. See, we right. don't know that. We just think it's it rhymes. Right, exactly. Um, so the name Sesame Street is actually credited to one of the writers, Virginia Schoen, who um, threw that name out, and basically it got, it got time to let the publicity people know what the title was, and they basically picked the least worst option they oh felt, which was Sesame Street. <laughs> and that's what they went on. They went with it, and they thought that was the least bad title. Isn't well, I heard I've that- never questioned it ever. Because no. Because if you think about it, why Sesame? It's like a Sesame Well, seed. it was like well, open, sesame, open Sesame. Open Sesame. Open yeah. Sesame. Yeah. 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 Oh, I've never even questioned it. It's just such a thing that always existed. I've never Right. And that it. iconic sign when we, you know, when it opens yeah. and we see mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Exactly. And you can't imagine anything. And the alliteration with the sesame two. Street. Yeah, Sesame yeah. Street. Mm-hmm. It just, it really goes. But when you think about it, it was like, all right, just give us one because, you know. PR is bothering me, and let's just, what's the least worst? And And it ends up being history. Yes, exactly, which I thought So cavalier. um, Yeah, so that was a fun fact. Another was, do you know that there was actually an episode that had to be removed? from? There was so much complaint, there were so many complaints about it that PBS actually had to take it off of the air. Not many, not many days after it was on, it was so controversial. Any idea what that is? I bet no. you, Michelle. Was nice. it our era? Like early? It, 70s? Yes, it was our era. It was in 1976. Yeah, you might yeah, not I know because like- it was pulled so quickly. You've been unable to find it. It hasn't been anywhere for you I to have go one and more guess. loot and I have find one more it. Guess. I know. Okay. I read about it. Is well, it, it was pulled it because parents thought it was too scary. So here it was, oh. episode 847 features Margaret Hamilton reprising her role as the Wicked Witch of the West nearly four decades after The Wizard of Oz premiered. Um, It was was banned for being too scary for kids, and for decades, like I just said, it was difficult to find anywhere. Um, The appearance was actually uploaded about, well, June of 22 to YouTube, so now you can see it. For the first time. Oh yes, for the first time. And within like six months, it had like 500,000 views because <laughs> no one had seen it before. And basically, um, the segment is she flies in on her broomstick and she threatens to turn Big Bird into a feather duster and charms Oscar <laughs> the Grouch. And it had it ended up being about like, um, I think it was about being clean or something. I can't even remember the <laughs> whole thing of it. But um it, and I could say, Margaret Hamilton scared the bejeebies out oh, of me, so even when she was the Folgers yes. woman. Do you remember she was like the <laughs> yes. coffee spokesperson? Oh, oh it's it was almost when, 
Yes, yes, yes. So, and poor Margaret Hamilton, because she did go on Mr. Rogers, but as herself, like as Margaret Hamilton, the, mm-hmm. the actress. But on here, she was the Wicked Witch of the West. So anyway, that, yes, that was taken off. And unless you were lucky enough to see it the day it aired, and you never saw it back. Again. Yep, they what, never did it. Did you say it's on YouTube, pulled. though? Yes, so we will okay, put a link. we're going to put that in the weekly reader for sure. Yes, okay. for sure. All right, now. You both know, or if you don't know by now, I don't know where you've been, um, that I love a good crossover. You know, yeah. I love mm-hmm. when somebody from Fantasy Island shows up on the love boat or whatever. Yeah. So it was interesting for me to find out that there were some times that some of our electric company friends tootled on over and oh. they were on Sesame Street. Uh, Rita Moreno would come on as um, Millie the Milk Lady. Morgan <laughs> Freeman reprised his role as Easy Reader. And this is perhaps the most interesting of all, another thing that's difficult to find. In 1974, ABC had a TV special, and it was called Out to Lunch, okay? Now, Out to Lunch featured not only the characters from Sesame Street, all of our Muppet friends, and all of our friends also from The Electric Company. It also included Elliot Gould, Barbara Eden, and Carol Burnett. The premise of the show was that ABC newscasters had all gone to lunch, and it was up to the electric company cast and the Muppets to make up an hour of programming. So they've, like, taken over the ABC studios for an hour. And Carol Burnett's kind of trying to help them and all of that. So it, um, again, was really, really hard to find. And I don't think you can inf- you can find the entire episode, but you can now find um, some segments of it. So, again, I will um, will provide those links on um, in our weekly reader. But can you imagine? I just think that's like, would Mm -hmm. be so fun. And the last thing I wanted to share was um, something the current producers have said about these shows that we're talking about um, in our episode, those shows of the 70s, Mm -hmm. and says that some of those could not be um, produced today or put on the air today. He um, cites Cookie Monster's dietary choices and including a pipe that he, um, he smokes. After a while, which I don't remember oh, the this pipe. He does. Yeah. He smokes a pipe. Cookie Monster <laughs> smokes a pipe. Uh huh. How did that fly over my head? So yeah, my dad would do. <laughs> well, I think that's what all I pipe smokers I do. That, I guess. <laughs> I think that's what pipe <laughs> smokers. Give me a break a with Cookie Monster eating a million cookies. That's so silly. Right. So you couldn't like, have that. He's gonna have to eat vegetables. Yeah. Um, the children shown riding their bikes without helmets. Oh, come on. Um, and running through construction sites, which I, va- I have vague memories of that. Like when the kids were just like set free and yes. oh, I would think well, like, that's, that's how I grew cool. up. My sister yeah. and I ran through construction sites all the time where they're building it, new exactly. houses. We would go in the mm-hmm. houses that were like just framed. Oh, and just jump off the stairwells and stuff. There's probably nails. Stairs. Oh, for sure that was we cool. did. Probably mm-hmm. nails were everywhere. We were in like flip flops. Who knows? Right. Yeah. We're alive. And then I don't. Again, I guess because of who we were, I know I never thought this was anything, but this producer goes on to say, and in the opening scene of the very first episode, a young girl is being shown around Sesame Street by a grown man, Gordon, who is not her father and is holding her hand. That's, that's so sad that that would be something that yeah. people would get upset Or you'd about. have to th- that's yeah, think twice about. Censored. Um, Come on. So yeah, I thought those were some um, some funny little... 
facts that you might not have already known. Those are fun facts. Those are great, Carolyn. Thank you. You're welcome. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Oh, cookie, cookie, cookie starts with C. You guys, it makes me very proud to be the inaugural audience for Sesame Street. We were the guinea pigs. We were the recipients of this historic experiment. And despite Sesame Street's historic run on public television, I fear we may never see anything like it ever again. No. You know, HBO, I know a little bit about the story, you guys, and and it's HBO pulled it because they want to make room for all the new stuff coming in. Mm-hmm. And even our own kids, you know, again, this being an experience that I wanted mm-hmm. my kids to have Sesame Street. Right. But at that time, there were some other choices. Cable TV had come out, you A know, and we had other options. Mm-hmm. We had, I think, Disney Junior or whatever and Nickelodeon and some other things. So it wasn't the only thing, which for us, there wasn't right. really an option. Right. That's right. My we kids definitely watched it, but it wasn't the only like it was right. for us. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's cheers to Sesame Street and say yeah. thank you to the universe for that divine timing. We were alive when Sesame Street was introduced to the world. Thank you for listening today and tune in next week because guess what? We're not done. When we'll share your favorite Sesame Street moments in a countdown of the top 10 best skits, songs, and sketches from this groundbreaking show. And please subscribe to our weekly reader if you are not already a subscriber, because this week is going to be full of fun video links to some of those sketches and songs that we talked about in the episode. You can sign up for the weekly reader on our website, poppreservationists.com, or at our link in bio on Instagram. And if you'd like to see see portions of this episode, we are excited to tell you that we now have clips of our conversations on our YouTube channel. That's right. We can be found at Pop Culture Preservation Society on YouTube. It's always fun to see behind the curtain, isn't it? I think so. Um, (laughs) You can see our resting, our listening faces um, that that always horrify us when we see them. You guys, who thought this was a good idea? I know. (laughs) Who thought this was a good idea now? now. Uh, And today's episode was funded by our supporters on Patreon. And we like to thank you by name. Everyone who joins our supporters on Patreon gets a shout out on this podcast because they are what makes all of this happen. Today, we'd like to give a big thank you to Amy, Dee, Kimberly, Anisha, Robert, Emily, and Mendel. And lastly, if you like what you hear, and we really hope you do, thank you for taking a moment to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating wherever you listen. That helps our podcast get heard by others. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the cast of Three's Company. Two good times. Two happy days. Two little house on the prairie. Cheers. Cheers. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Something always happens whenever we together.